Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She is the Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. This show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? This podcast is recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabewaki, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. This land is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Historical and ongoing legacies of colonization produce injustices for Indigenous communities, and this podcast aims to understand alternative ways forward. Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, I am so excited and so thrilled today to introduce you to Chelsea Walt. She is an American science and environmental writer based in The Hague in the Netherlands. She is a freelance journalist who writes about science, the environment, health, technology, and anything else that delights, disturbs, or distracts her. And currently, that means everything about toilets. I am actually a huge fan of her book, Pipe Dreams. I have bought it for people. I have told people to read it. So I am so thrilled. Welcome, and I'm so happy you're here today. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to join you. I haven't met you in person, but that is the goal. Uh, I just found you. I actually think Danny Barrington, who was a previous guest, is a shared colleague of ours, and she posted your book, I think, on Twitter, where I saw your book. She's in my book, and she was helpful as well at certain stages of the book writing process, so I'm a big fan of Danny's, and people should go back and listen to the episode if they haven't already, because she's a good guest as well for your show. (laughs) Thank you for that. Um, So, Chelsea, I'm going to show up in The Hague, which I actually would love to visit you. Yeah. I'm going to show up there right now in my time machine. And my time machine, you know, is very fancy. It can do time-space distance. It can have multiple stopovers. It's COVID safe. And I'm going to say, Chelsea, take me back to the time and place where you started thinking about toilets and about all of the issues around stigma and equity and where would we go? And we could go to more than one place, as I said, in our magical time machine, but why toilets? Where are we going to go in this this time of your life? Yeah, this is a really, I mean, for me, it's kind of funny how this happened because I don't really have a, a very powerful origin story. I think I'm more of an example of how anyone can start noticing toilets and can become caught up in how interesting they are once you kind of just get a peek into how fascinating they are. So I guess we could go to Alaska, 
Nice. I was a science environmental journalist. Before I started writing about toilets, I had the opportunity to go to Tulik Field Station in Alaska, where a lot of environmental research is done. And they have some really unusual toilets. They have these toilets, you have to go up these stairs and then there's like a big container underneath them that collects every deposit you make. Mm -hmm. And then they have to take (laughs) these whole containers away. They can't leave them on site because the site is so pristine. And if you just introduced all the nutrients from all of the scientists at this camp into the local environment, then their science would be ruined. And that was kind of the first time that I really understood that our poop isn't just smelly or pee and poop aren't just smelly or, you know, just waste, but they actually, you know, contain nutrients that can be disruptive to ecosystems. On the other hand, they could be used for good purposes as well. So it's sort of this little microcosm up in Alaska helped me understand the big picture of how humans are connected to the environments in which we live, to the planet, actually through our pee and our poop. Then later, I got a couple assignments. So I'd been a science and environmental journalist for 10 years. I got a couple of assignments from editors who came to me, and both of those had to do with toilets in very different ways. One was about toilets for very low-resource contexts. And and specifically, I ended up focusing on a lot of the toilets and the Gates Foundation's Reinvent the Toilet Challenge for that story. I saw that on Netflix. Oh, yes, exactly. For that Inside Bill's Brain um, special. And then the other one was totally different. It was about cities and where we can get more heat from in our cities and how inefficiently we use heat. And so we throw so much heat down the drain into our sewers, not really through toilets, but through washing machines and so forth. And so sewers and sewage is the source of heat that we could actually use heat pumps to bring back up into our cities and we could use that again. So it's sort of a a wasted energy source. It's a difficult challenge, but it's possible. And so I just did these back to back. And then I started thinking that there was just this whole universe of innovation. So my work is really now on the future of the toilet. And so I started noticing that there was so much innovation going on, having to do with environment, technology, also, you know, behavior, psychology, so many people, interesting people were working on toilets. Over time, I learned more and more, I wrote more and more. And then I brought it all together in this book, Pipe Dreams, about the future of the toilet and the kind of radical transformation that we could have that would benefit us if we could take it on, not just for low resource context, not just for the billions of people who have poor, inadequate toilets, but really for everybody in every context. We there, we have so much more that we could do with toilets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm so, I mean, your book, I learned so much from it. Um, Me too. (laughs) (laughs) That's always good. So I guess my my first question would be around, what do you think toilets have to do with stigma? Is there stigma around toilets? Have you noticed that as being somebody who's doing the research into it? Or is it something you think we stigmatize toilets because of our perceptions of 
human waste. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I remember thinking s- sewers. I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah. You get all the all the action movies, all the like things go down in the sewers, all the bad people are in the yes. sewers, you know. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I'm not an academic, so I don't really have a formal definition of stigma in my mind, but it's it's connected, you know, with toilets to kind of the issues of disgust, the emotion of disgust, the emotion mm-hmm. of shame. Yep. Um, and they're all kind of mm-hmm. swirling around the notion of toilets. And it, it's different in different cultures, but I have yet to come across a culture in which toilets aren't at some level associated with some kind of stigma. I think that this affects our ability to make changes at almost every level at which change happens. And you know, the stigma in many cases means that this ubiquitous technology actually is in many ways invisible, something we don't talk about, something we're trained as from our childhood, not to talk about that it's potty talk isn't polite conversation. Um, So someone who wants to talk about toilets is weird, right? And it's not, oh, you can't do that over dinner. You can't do over that. Like there has to be a certain time and place. And when is that? Like, what are people saying? Like, okay, now let's talk about toilets, maybe in like an engineering meeting or something. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And I think I've found uh, basically socially acceptable way to talk about toilets through journalism. You know, I have this, this venue through which to do it. Maybe some engineers do it. But you know what, when I was, you know, on my kind of book tour of radio shows and stuff, I, I got an email from a guy who was a wastewater engineer in the Pacific Northwest, I think, in the U.S. And he sent me an email. He said, thank you so much for talking about this. He said, I've been a wastewater engineer my whole life, bringing clean water basically cleaning water to return to the environment, you know, providing essential service to this community. But my wife won't even let me tell people what I do when we go to parties wow. because she thinks that it won't be received well. Wow. So talk about stigma, right? I think that's yeah. that's a really good example. Another interview I did, the radio host after the interview he said, let me turn off the uh, recording. I'm not going to tell you who this is. <laughs> let me turn off the recording because <laughs> I have something to tell you. And he t- proceeded to tell me that he collected urine in his home and used it in his garden, which is a safe practice if done the right way and you know, a really environmentally friendly practice. And I said, well, why didn't you say this when you were during the interview? That would have been so awesome if you had shared that. He's like, oh, my producer would have killed me. And I was like, why? Come on. That's great. That's great audio. Um, (laughs) But people talk about these things quietly in private, but they don't know how it will be received. Similarly, politicians don't really want their names associated with, say, the wastewater treatment plant. You know, they don't want their, you know, it's not a sexy thing to fund or to be associated with, even though it's very necessary. There's some exceptions, some politicians who who have stepped up in that way. But that prevents, you know, lots of sufficient funding, potentially, you know, government funding. Also, NGOs maybe don't see it as as good as funding something that 
that people won't, you know, make fun of or that won't stink, you know, because <laughs> sometimes these facilities, you know, wastewater treatment plants smell, you know, no one's going to come show up to, to tour it. And then people who do have poor sanitation are often silent about it and don't speak up for themselves because they'll be stigmatized if people know that they have a septic tank that's overflowing or if they have a pit latrine that isn't working properly or that's full or, you know, people won't speak up for mm -hmm. that part of their life that's not working because, yeah, you don't want people to know that you are struggling with that. So, yeah. yeah, it's so interesting. I I was just in, in Kenya last week talking to you and mentioned to you very young adolescents, 10 to 14 in a rural area around their experiences with toilets, with water, with food. And I learned something, and I'm sure you, you've heard this before, but I didn't understand even that in some cases if toilets are maybe not constructed correctly, there's jiggers, like little like bugs that live in there and can get on people's feet. And, and I was like, oh, I didn't know about this. I didn't know that you know, toilets could be so stressful for people, depending on how they're constructed, the time of year, what footwear people have to wear if they're using, say, an outdoor toilet. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that Danny has written about is how, you know, well-meaning projects to construct toilets can backfire if those toilets are not constructed with good materials. People can fall into toilets. There have been cases of drownings, especially elderly or very young people. Oh. I don't know about, you know, this specific bug situation, but um, but certainly I think there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of aspects. What to say about that? <laughs> I mean, I guess there's a lot, there's a lot of ways toilets can go wrong, you know, and in any number of those can be mm -hmm. stigmatizing, I suppose. Yeah, people don't feel good and safe or have dignity when they are trying to use a toilet. Mm. Did you come across that in some of your research, how that might affect people in their sort of day to day? Well, I, I was going to give an example. It's a, it's answering a slightly different question. I, I think dignity is an important aspect of this. And so I was able to go to Capetian, which is the second largest city in Haiti, um, to look at a project. Great. It's beautiful. It's it's beautiful. Yeah. Right? Oh, you have been. Yeah. It's so nice. I've been there. It's so it lovely. was it was yeah it was beautiful and it's on the water there's a bay it's yeah 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 I mean I was very lucky to have the chance to visit and in there they have there's a sort of growing movement in sanitation called container-based sanitation and the idea is it's a service where in Capetian the way it works is that people for their homes they rent a toilet there's containers inside the toilet that get filled up they put the container outside. Someone comes, picks up the full container and leaves an empty container. It's kind of like a compost pickup. or And then it, it actually does get taken to a central facility for composting. This project is called Soil, but there's similar container-based sanitation projects that have risen up actually independently of each other, but they're now working together around the world. Great. It's a throwback, but to an old idea, the sort of night soil idea, but it's a new iteration of this, and it's showing a lot of promise also from an environmental perspective. 
So I went to go watch this. So this is in the very poor, informal areas of the city that this service is provided, where people might have access to a pit latrine, maybe, I mean, I saw some a couple that were, you know, didn't really have even good seats to sit down on, you know, very, and they would, the doors don't work very well. So, so yeah, I mean, when you talk about sort of privacy and dignity, I would, you know, be fearful if using one of these toilets that someone would be able to just open the door while I was in the middle of using it. And certainly if falling in would be a concern that I would have as well. And so providing these, these toilets that are mobile that people can put in their homes in a private area of their home and use, when they want is is certainly an improvement. And and the people who subscribe to this service have a little badge over their doors showing that they're a subscriber. So that indicates to me that they're they're proud to show that they subscribe to this, that they're customers of this service. So there isn't a stigma attached to using the service. And when we went, when I went around with some of the staff members of the service, people would come out and talk to them. Mm. And that also suggests there's not that there's a, and the, the, the people who work for the service have a, at least as they express to me, have a pride in it. And that's in a huge contrast to this um, kind of informal worker, mm-hmm. this profession exists worldwide of the pit latrine emptier. So when pit latrines fill up, which they do in cities very quickly, people have to pay large sums of money relative to their incomes to have pit latrines emptied. Mm-hmm. And the people who do that work are very, very, very often unregulated, unprotected. And in some parts of the world and in parts of Haiti, they come at night. They're so stigmatized they don't want to be seen. So they come at night and they actually will get in the latrine because that is the only way that they can actually properly empty it. And sometimes not even wearing clothes or, you know, wearing not wear definitely not wearing sufficient protective gear. So those people are highly stigmatized, whereas the workers for soil who have uniforms on that mm-hmm. show that they work for this company who do work with the same material they work with poop right but they they live a very different life out in the open and are you know very happy to tell me their names and to talk about how they feel that they're contributing to the future of their country to the prosperity of their country so i've found that example to be very sort of illustrative in terms of the questions around stigma Mm -hmm. no it's so powerful just the fact i remember the very first time I even came across the idea that there's some a person who empties toilets and it's not a machine mm. was more than 20 years ago. I was living, living in Ghana and there were, I was walking down an alleyway and there was a person clearly carrying a toilet, like the empties of yeah. the insides of a toilet. I don't know all the things that were in there, but it was very pungent and was carrying it on his head. And I just remember being like, wow, look at a huge bucket on his head. And I was like, yeah, what a job. And and it was pitch black. It was in the dark of night. You know, I, I didn't really understand that. I mean, you, you do know that, that, you know, often there's stigma towards sanitation workers in general, you know, yes. but that, that, that the people would be doing this at night. It would, it would be such a stigmatized profession. It's so stigmatized. Yeah. That people do it at night. Um. So this, this idea of, 
container-based sanitation sort of turns this on its head. On the other hand, what I found also very instructive is that if you go to South Africa, what you find is that the history in South Africa makes container-based sanitation less culturally acceptable. And that's because under apartheid, Black communities had to use bucket toilets. Mm -hmm. In their homes? Um, I am not going to describe exactly how it worked because I'm not entirely sure. But yes, I think that it's in their homes. Um, they used buckets and then they would um, take them yeah. out yeah. somewhere to be picked up, okay, I believe. Yeah. But I could be wrong okay. about that. So, But this whole idea of a bucket toilet um, is associated with a very heavy stigma. And so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then so it could be that while container-based sanitation can thrive in one context, in another context with a totally different history, you'll have a different kind of reaction to that kind of idea. Even though still in South Africa today, there are many places with very poor sanitation. The reason I I was asking who was in the home is we're working in informal settlements right now in Nairobi, mm-hmm. and a lot of the young people we're working with say that it's so unsafe to go to the latrine at night that people have to use buckets in their homes just because there's no other yes. safe option. Yeah. And how do you reconcile that with, you know, it could be empowering or it could be you're doing it because there's no other other option that's a safe option. So it's well that's right. You're right. It's so it's so different, right? In different places in the world. Well, I mean, I think it's that's also really interesting because in the U.S., there's this association of a sort of eco-toilet with a sort of um, mm. environmentally proactive idea. There's an organization in Vermont called the Rich Earth Institute that collects urine. People will collect their urine and then they'll take it in their trucks and drop it off at a depot and that gets turned into fertilizer. And people very happily do that. You know, they sign up for this service wow. and it's a very cool thing to participate in. In, you know, and so that's a complete, and these are people who have um, white porcelain thrones in their homes, so they don't need to be doing this. This is a choice that they're making. So it really depends so much on context and history, whether something is stigmatized or celebrated. I remember a long, long time ago, it must have been more than 20 years ago, I was on the Haida Gwaii which is between Alaska and Vancouver Island, also known as the Queen Charlotte Islands, but the indigenous name is, is Haida Gwaii, hmm. these islands. And I stayed on this tiny little island called Kungit Island. And the person was all living close to the land. So there was like a bicycle that ground the grain and they had this toilet that I'd never seen before, but it was a compost toilet. This was decades ago, but I don't think they've caught on i don't know anybody with the compost toilet i don't know why we i don't know if it's because it's expensive or there's more stigma or it's harder to manage like i don't know i'm I'm assuming it's better for the earth for there to be a a compost toilet than our our typical systems that take up so much water but you're right it's interesting when it can be trendy in one place and a necessity in another place and sort of not the preference in another place just because it it seems like there's less choice or options yeah i i find it endlessly fascinating so in your perspective what would you suggest that we can do to talk about toilets more you know you you have a vision about the future of the toilet and you said that 
because there's silence around toilets and stigma it might we might not be having those conversations as frequently or in as many spaces or getting the funding because toilets aren't sexy right like mm. other things could be more yeah. you know we're appealing for funders the toilets and they're complicated you know like yes. when youth are like we're like what recommendations do you have for the toilets? So build more toilets. Oh, that's a lesson. That's hard to do. You know, maybe solar lighting is something. Community schedules for cleaning toilets. Well, I'm like, building toilets. It feels feels like it's an expensive endeavor. It takes a lot. Like, so I feel like um, there must be multiple kind of solutions floating floating around for us to improve our kind of dialogue on toilets and and our solutions. Yeah. I mean, as far as like the technology goes, you know, I think that we need to have a wider variety of options available than the one thing that we think of as the toilet, which is, you know, or the ultimate idea of the toilet, which is a, you know, the flush toilet uh, attached to a pipe, to the sewer, to a wastewater treatment plant. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to, to work on diversifying our notion of what a toilet is and to bringing all of those different ideas up to a sort of gold standard mm. level so that it doesn't feel like, you know, some people have the good toilet, whereas a lot of, you know, everyone else doesn't. We need a lot of good toilets. But in order to do that, we do need, I think, to have more conversations. Not in every case. I do want to say that in some cases, I don't think that the right move is to reduce stigma. So say, take the South Africa case. I don't want to go and tell people that they should accept a kind of toilet that they find stigmatizing mm -hmm. because for for perfectly legitimate historical reasons. Mm -hmm. People should be able to adopt the kind of toilet that they choose, right? Mm -hmm. Totally. But in order to do that, you need to be able to have the conversation with them or they need to have the conversation with each other. This isn't my job to bring people toilets, but people need to be able to have the conversation <laughs> with the right people about the kinds of toilets that they want to have. And if they decide that something is not right for them, mm -hmm. who am I to say that, that, that they're wrong about that? On the other hand, I think that as we were talking about a little, I think we can you know, kind of make toilets a bit cooler than they are. I mean, I think you know we mentioned... Mm -hmm. Bill Gates, you know, with this show, Making Toilets Cool, I, I hope maybe I did, have done it a little bit with what, you know, my outreach around the book. There's some more books, uh, you know, coming out about toilets and poop and, you know, just sort of making it a little trendy, a little sexy to talk about toilets. One of the strategies that I, well, there, I was talking about two kind of strategies. Maybe I, I have... I have three things actually. Great. Um, one is, you Tell know, us what to do. One is, <laughs> one is, you know, when you're trying to 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 bring up these topics, there's always jokes. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, laughing really cuts through a lot of the shame and the stigma. I worry a little bit about making it too much of a joke so that it's not taken seriously. So I think that there's a balance there in terms of and your your book does have jokes my book does have jokes <laughs> it does it's good it has jokes it has puns I try to be funny um at the same time it's it's a very densely written I think dense with information and it's not you know as a as a book it's not funny like it's yeah 
it's not a joke book, but it has jokes in mm-hmm. it. And I, and, and I just try to lighten the mood with the jokes, I think. And it's easy to do that with, with this topic. But yes, we, we don't want to make it into unserious, right? It's very serious, mm-hmm. but we can also make jokes. <laughs> and then I'd like to tie the topic of toilets. So not everyone's going to be focused on toilets or think that toilets are their main cause. But the thing is, toilets are everywhere. Toilets are one of the ways that we are connected to each other Mm -hmm. and to the planet. So toilets tie into almost every other topic that people could be interested in. So gender topics, climate, Mm -hmm. ocean health, you know, all these cool topics. Homelessness. Very much are connected to toilets. And so I think we can just meet people where they are. We don't have to bring people over to the toilet side, but we can just bring toilets to them and say, hey, (laughs) just broaden your perspective for a second. And you can see how toilets are, you know, come into the field of vision for the subject that you are passionate about. Mm -hmm. It's so true. Like toilets are already there and maybe we're just not noticing them. Right. Like if like if you were working with people who are experiencing homelessness, but we're not experiencing homelessness then we might just not notice that they probably already know where the toilets are, but we might not notice them. So it's very interesting. Toilets are relevant for so many people, right? Like for people who are taking care of children, for people, you know, who might need to do something in the toilet, like menstruation hygiene management, maybe maybe they're testing their blood sugar, like all of these different things. You know, you're right. Like, Toilets are are relevant, and and maybe we just need to widen our lens to see how they're relevant, not just for us, but for the people or the issues that we're we're, we're interested in. In many places, tourism has been a driver behind toilet access, right? You know, you go visit countries where there aren't toilets available at tourist sites, and, you know, it's an issue. Like New York, San Francisco, you need to buy something to use a toilet and they yes. shut all those places down in the pandemic. Like, oh, sorry, our toilets are just closed. It's the pandemic. Like, did we all stop needing to pee yeah. in the pandemic? I don't know. Like, open yeah. defecation increased during the pandemic because the toilets were closed and open defecation is a huge health issue. I mean, it's not a good thing. So I'm not sure whether when they closed these public toilets, whether it was balanced very well against the risks of open defecation, I don't know. And it was done differently in different places, but I was watching that very, very closely as well. We have shamefully low access to public toilets, shameful in Canada. There's hardly any public toilets. You walk downtown Toronto, you'd be hard pressed to find public mm-hmm. toilets. You have to go into a park and then it has to be the right hours and maybe when it's open, <laughs> but you know, and I find, I don't know if there's other places in the world that are better experienced for tourists, definitely not New York. We always go to New York and I have to be like, okay, where's your coffee shops or Starbucks or even you have to buy something yeah. to use the bathroom. But I feel like it, it's difficult yeah. to find a public bathroom and then one that you would want to use. Yes, exactly. Because and it would be clean and safe and, you know. Yeah. And then, and then it, it, can certainly exclude large numbers of people from public spaces who don't feel comfortable leaving their homes because they don't think they can find a toilet when they do as well. I mean, something to consider. 
Oh, and then just a third thing, because I don't want to leave the listeners hanging, is, yes. it has to do with my <laughs> approach to journalism, which is I tend to take, I think for, for toilets, it's a very good strategy, is this approach called solutions journalism, which focuses on solutions and through the lens of solutions, examines the problems. Nice. So isn't just like an expose of what's going wrong, but looks at the responses. And there's so many responses um, happening. Solutions journalism, it doesn't just like, uplift a response to a problem unconditionally, I guess. But what it does is it takes a, a look at what's working, what's not working, what might work in other places, what might be problematic in other places. You know, so it takes a really critical view, in a good way, critical view of responses to problems. And uh, in that way, I think is a, a hopeful way of doing journalism around certain um, types of problems like sanitation are you a social worker because that's a, also we have solution focused social <laughs> work i love that and, you know i'm always trying to infuse solutions and in, in, in hope so maybe one thing listeners could do if you're interested they can check out your web page which you're going to have yeah. it has some great resources your book to start thinking about what are this kind of solutions in your local communities or globally I love that. I do think that locally, yeah, people can look at what's needed locally. And you might be surprised, you know, if you've never really thought about your city or where you live or your even your home in terms of, you know, through this lens, it can really, it can really become fascinating very quickly and urgent. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. Before yeah. we, we leave, I have a few, I know I've, I've learned a lot from you and now I want to know a little bit more about you. Are you up for a few yeah. rapid fire wild card questions? Ooh, hit me. All right. What are you watching on Netflix? Crave, Hulu, your platform? Um, <laughs> well, I have this infant who doesn't let me sit and watch much. But the last thing that I finished was Never Have I Ever, which is the Mindy Kaling. Oh, I heard um, about that. about it, a teenage girl and her you know her her struggles it's very charming I I really really enjoyed it and can recommend it I, okay. I sort of binged it during late nights and then you know just going back to the comedy theme every once in a while you know I only have time for a stand-up comedy special which you can watch on Netflix and I do think comedians are so good at this question of stigma and destigmatizing and normalizing I watched Mike Barbiglia's special, I think it's called The New One, where he talks about new fatherhood. Oh, I didn't hear that. So he sort of does some, you know, he does some jokes around being the father of a young child, which is relevant in my life because I have this young baby now. And then also um, male infertility a little bit, which is a highly, highly stigmatized topic. So oh, um, I, I love that. And talking about South Africa, I love Trevor Noah. Oh, yeah. I see he's got a new one coming out and yeah 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 that's, so, that's such a it's I love doing the one-off comedy specials too I'm a little afraid of the com commitment to a series yes but, <laughs> um okay one next question is if you could go anywhere in the world for dinner with anybody living or dead where would you go and who would you take so right now I have just become very interested in this idea of inter generational trauma or intergenerational errands, you know, this idea that we inherit 
things that we don't even know what they are from our ancestors. I don't know if you've come across this, but yes. Yeah. Anyway, so so I think right now in my life, like just sort of what I've been thinking about, I, and also possibly just because I I have these young children and I'm you know thinking about motherhood and and what it means to be um, one in a a line. <laughs> So I, I guess this is the long preamble to say, I, I'd love to go just meet my ancestors. Wow. Yeah. Where, where, where were they in the world? Where were they? Yeah. Where were they? What were they doing? What did, what were the experience, what were the big experiences in their lives? What, what was unresolved for them, you know, just in a sort of quest to better understand myself and myself as a parent, you know, I think that would be so fascinating and useful, but no. impossible, of course. <laughs> Never know. <laughs> The time machine it could, <laughs> could be being refined, just like the toilets. <laughs> and the very last thing I I ask all the podcast guests is, is there a piece of wisdom or quote or saying that has helped you in your journey in life that you want to share with the listeners? Well, I think that uh, one thing that I has helped me in the past couple of years has been this notion that when so it's it's to sort of interrogate any time you hear yourself telling you that you should do something so and this word should you know mm. is is often has to do with other people or our perception of what other people expect of us mm. and so not that when you think you should do something that you shouldn't i mean maybe you will do that thing but maybe that should that just that should word is maybe a indicator that you should that you could <laughs> that you might want to <laughs> interrogate that 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 feeling that thought and and ask yourself well what do you want to do mm. you know working on such a big project as the book and talking to so many people I felt that the weight of expectations and this sort of mental chorus of other people being like oh your book should be like this or your book should be like that mm it's impossible to live up to all of those expectations, especially since I've basically invented them myself. So, uh, so I think, yeah, that's, that's at least something that's been uh, very helpful to me. Oh, I also learned that the tense should have, so I should have done X um, that's known as the modal of lost opportunities, which I found incredibly beautiful like poetic the modal of lost opportunities wow. and uh and a lost opportunity it, it's lost so it's time to let go let it go yeah. i love that i really like that like be aware of when we say should question the should don't dwell on the lost opportunities i love that i really love that because we need to be more forward forward thinking yeah and also more liberated from uh other people's expectations you know be more selective <laughs> I do think that also that also has a kind of connection to the notion of stigma, just this idea of what other people expect yeah. or what's right or correct. Yeah, I love that. I, again, yeah, I think maybe there's a, a link there. Yes, I love that. Chelsea, it has been an absolute pleasure. Everybody, you should truly, truly read Pipe Dreams. I couldn't put it down. It's a book on toilets, and I couldn't get enough of it. It's historical, it's current, it's smart there's humor it's such a great book thank you so much for coming on the podcast today thank you so much for inviting me i i really really enjoyed it thanks 
Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us again for more conversations with stigma experts from around the globe. If you want to listen, what I have to tell you.